I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Ah, welcome, welcome, welcome to another fabuloso day. I hope all is well with you in your house. Welcome to another episode of Coffee, the Bible, and Page. Today, we're going to be looking at Jude. Now, it's a short little epistle. We're going to be able to handle the whole thing today. And then what happens beginning on Monday? Hmm. The last book of the New Testament, Revelation. Looking forward to that, to be honest. As weird as that book is to me, uh, I'm looking forward to uh, seeing what it has to unpack for us. Now, to Jude. Uh, let's just pile right in. I'm going to give a little, read a little bit of an introduction to you. And then I'm going to read the entire epistle, beginning to end, without any commentary. And then I'm going to chat about this. It's a really, really, really important message that we need to hear, that I need to hear and be reminded of. It bears importance today to today's culture because we have a lot of people <clears throat> who are misunderstanding what the Christian faith is. And uh, we are under, Christians are under attack uh, by people who are wanting to tell them what the Christian faith should look like and what it should be like. And we're under attack from within because there's some people within the body of Christ or claiming to be members in the body of Christ whose lifestyle totally denies the truth. And that's kind of where Jude's going. So let's look at the introduction to this, and then we'll get into the letter itself. All right. I got this from one of the commentaries that uh, I use. Um, although a, pseudo, a pseudopigrapher, <laughs> I hope I pronounced that right. Anyway, a pseudopigrapher uh, is someone who writes a letter or a book using somebody else's name. Sometimes they'll write it pretending to be someone from the past. There's a, a lot of the apocryphal books or the uh, books that were not accepted into the canon of the New Testament that bear the name of uh, somebody, but they were written by somebody else. Sometimes they'll take somebody from way back in history and write a letter in that person's name. So although a pseudepigrapher would want to clarify which Jude he was, and you're going to see that when we get in this letter. He just announces himself as, well, let me just go to it here real quick. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. All right, well, Jude is a fairly common name. And usually someone who's writing in someone else's name is going to want to put forth more explanation about who they are. So if they wanted to make this person, make sure that you believe this person was somebody famous, they would write, their name and, uh, and a long flowery introduction so you know exactly who they're saying they are. So although a pseudographer would want to clarify which Jude he was, in other words, is this Jesus's brother Jude, really? Or write in the name of someone more prominent, this author does not specify which Jude he is, 
making it improbable that this letter was pseudepigraphic. <laughs> oh, surely they could come up with a better word than that. Pseudepigraphic. In other words, he's saying this guy doesn't really announce with a bunch of flair who he is. I mean, so this guy who's writing this really is Jude, not someone else that he wants you to think is Jude. Um, at the same time, his lack of clarification as to which Judy is and the fact that he seems to be already known to his audience, we're going to see that in a minute, uh, suggests that he is, most, he is the most prominent Jude. In other words, this letter, which was accepted by the church fathers as genuine, even though it's such a teeny short little letter, it leads to the point that this Jude probably is the half-brother of Jesus and of James, who was a leader in Jerusalem. Apparently, Jesus uh, had his 12 disciples, his 12 apostles, but his family, apparently, his brothers, finally came around to realizing who he was. And James, his brother, became a leader in Jerusalem, and this Jude, another half-brother, writes this letter. Apparently, he was someone of importance to the... Uh, um, Christian community. And so that's why he doesn't go into a bunch of explanation about who he is. He knows that the audience knows who he is. So he just says, hey, this is Jude, brother of James. This would also help to explain the letter's preservation despite its brevity and overlap with Second Peter. Early church tradition varied on which Jude wrote the letter. But this is the only Jude specifically known to us whose brother was called James. His Greek is sophisticated, but the thought world he shares with his readers is that of popular Judaism. So this book was written by Jude, the brother of James and Jesus. Jude was probably written in the mid-60s AD, and considering the letter's apparent Jewish perspective, Jude's audience was probably Jewish Christians or a mixture of Jewish and Gentile readers where the Gentiles we're familiar with Jewish traditions. So I'm going to read it from beginning to end, and then we're going to talk. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all of this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies. They reject authority and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael 
when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet, these people slander whatever they do not understand. And the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they've committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But, dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times, there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourself in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, the only God our Savior be glory majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Wow, where to start? Well, actually, I'm gonna start with verse 19 because this tells you who he's talking about. Now, he's talking to the church. Maybe in Jerusalem, I'm not sure. I, I, I think Jude and James both stayed in Jerusalem. So it makes sense if he's writing this to the church in Israel, you know, the, the way, as they called it. Um, but regardless, there's probably a majority of Jewish people that are hearing this letter uh, because he uses a lot of examples from the Jewish faith, uh, from what we would call the Old Testament. But he says that these people he's talking about in this, they're in the body there. They're within the body of Christ. And so that means they, many people would look at them and think they were part of the body of Christ. These are good fakers. And he says, but you have to remember, these are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. So the people he's talking about here aren't Christians who are in the process of losing their salvation. You can't do that. We've already discussed that. But he's saying that there are these people within the body of Christ that do not have the spirit. So now let's go back to the beginning and break this down a little bit. 
He starts off by saying he wanted to write more about the salvation we share, but there's there's a situation here that has to be dealt with. Certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. Now, how can they secretly slip in among them? It's kind of like people, uh, an agent going undercover in police work. Um, I've read countless stories of police undercover stings where uh, a policeman or, or a detective would go pretend to be a gangster in order to infiltrate a gang. Well, that's the same kind of thought that's going on here. They've secretly slipped in among you. They've learned what to say and some of how to act in, in order to be accepted by the people within the body. They secretly slipped in among you. But you need to know they're ungodly people. They pervert the grace of God, our God, into a license for immorality. All right. They're probably saying Jesus' words. They're probably saying Christian words, religious words, words that you would recognize, but they mean something different. Uh, cults do that a lot, where in order to snag people who have a bent towards Christianity, they'll say Christian-sounding things and the, in order to lure you in. So that's what's happening here. We have these people who've slipped in among us. Hmm, they're ungodly. And it says here, they pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality. All right, right away, I'm going to say they're using the grace of God as an excuse to do it ever we want. Oh, God will forgive me. I can do that. God will forgive me. I've signed on the dotted line. Um, they might even say, I follow the formula. Um, I believe that Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day, and I call him Lord. That makes me a Christian. Here's the deal with formulas. Formulas are something you put on the outside. They don't do anything to the inside. If you truly understood the grace of God, your life would change. Your life would be changed. They're here, these people are taking the grace of God and saying, oh, I can do what I want. I can have any kind of uh, sexual relationship I want. I can drink as much as I want. I can do whatever I want behavior-wise because, well, God will forgive me. If you only understood the grace of God and the mercy of God, you would not be like these people. The grace of God can best be understood against the backdrop of our depravity and sin. Now, at the end of this thing here, this uh, document, I've quoted uh, what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. God's grace is best understood against the backdrop of our sin. And here's what Paul says in chapter three. As it is written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All right, how many people does the phrase no one describe? Everybody. There's nobody righteous. There's not a single person of all the people on the face of the planet there's no one seeking God in and of themselves. 
There's no one who understands in and of themselves. All have turned away. They have all together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. All right, how many people have done good? None. How many people have turned away from God? All. What's the penalty if you turn away from God? Well, in Romans chapter six, I believe it says the wages of sin is death, separation from God. So this is, this is man's situation. This is the most horrific thing that I can imagine. Not seeking God. You know, it's funny. My heart has been changed since I bowed my knee to him. My life has changed since I bowed my knee to him. Way back in 1975. But in my salvation experience, and this is subjective, so this is not something I'd write down as a Bible thing, but this is subjective. But when I was in that church service and I heard that black gospel choir bringing down the praises of God like only a black full gospel choir can do, I was crying. My eyes were closed and I just had this incredible sensation that Jesus was standing next to me. And then I could reach out my hand and touch him. And these words went through my head. And I did not know these were Bible words at the time. Depart from me, ye wicked, to the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And if the gates to hell had opened up behind me, I would have walked through them without excuse because I was convicted. I knew and again, not knowing what these words meant at the time, I knew that I was a sinful man in the presence of a sinless God. I deserve death. That's the price of sin. And then I heard these words in my head, but I've loved you with an everlasting love. And I was overwhelmed with relief and joy because God forgave me at that moment. I got a sense of God's mercy and grace at that moment. And anybody who knows me, who knew me before and knows me now will tell you I'm a different man. And that was the point of demarcation for me where I went from old to new, old man to the new man. And my life changed. Now, it goes on to describe these people for whom no one does good. So their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. I have met people who were members of churches that fit this description. They practice deceit. They lie. They find it easy to curse and to be bitter and angry. The way of peace they don't know. There's no fear of God. It's like they are the antithesis of what we are called to be, and yet they call themselves Christians. And the reason they give for acting the way they do is the grace of God. That's what is what Jude is talking to. He's saying there's, there's people who snuck in among you. What's he say up here? He says, uh, uh, they've, slipped, they've secretly slipped in among you. They're ungodly people. They pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Now, whether this is part of this uh, heresy of Gnosticism, uh, where 
some people believe that uh, everything of the flesh is evil, so therefore, and everything of the sin, of spirit is good. And then when you get saved, your spirit is saved, but your body can do what it wants. It, you know, it's really screwy. Some of the thoughts that come out of that. But whether or not this this is that, these are ungodly people. They pervert the grace of God, turn it into something it's not. If you truly understood the grace of God, your life would change. And this would not be written about you. He goes on to say, and he gives examples. Um, God delivered all of his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those. Who did he destroy? Those who did not believe. They were all part of the chosen nation of Israel, but there was a portion of them that didn't believe and they were destroyed by God. They were separated. They were removed. On the outside, they all looked like Israelites. On the outside, they were of the, they were of the nation of Israel, but there was still a portion of them that even though they looked like Israel, and talked like Israel, they didn't believe, and God removed them. So we see that this pattern of these ungodly people who've secretly slipped in among us and are living crazy wild lives, that's happened throughout history. Um, now, he goes on to talk more about these people. He says, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies. In other words, they're using very subject, subjective reasoning for living the way they're living. Dream interpretation. Uh, they dream something and therefore they, they accept it as from the hand of God. But even though this is a dream that nobody can corroborate, so nobody even knows if they had this dream. They're looking for excuses to live a totally godless life, and yet still claim the name of Yeshua as God. Mm. That's not good. If you are truly of the saved, if you are truly of the family of God, your life will change. We've seen that through all the epistles. James says, you say you have faith? Good, I have faith. I'll show you my faith by how I live. I'll show you my faith by what I do. And what he's talking about is I am going to demonstrate the love of God in my life by living and loving, loving my neighbors, myself, and God with all my heart, soul, and mind. A believer, someone who's been touched by the grace of God cannot help but change. These people who claim the name of Jesus haven't changed. They're participating in all kinds of behavior that are just the antithesis of what a godly person should be. Now, how should a godly person be? Well, let's see. Ten Commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbors, yourself. Wraps up everything. You're not going to commit adultery. You're not going to steal. You're not going to a covet. You're going to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Um, all these things. These things should be working out in your life as a believer. 
Now, do we follow the Ten Commandments to get saved? No, that's not the point. The point is the Ten Commandments really are a description of what a changed life would look like. You can't get there on your own. This has to happen through the Spirit of God. And remember down here in verse 19, he said, they don't have the Spirit of God. So what's happened? How were they able to sneak inside? Well, they said the right words. And anybody can be nice for a short amount of time. But the real nature of these people is divisive. They cause division. They're angry. They're bitter. They fight. They are out of control with their, their life's habits. Woe to them. They've taken the way of Cain. They've rushed for profit into Balaam's error. Balaam was a prophet who would take money to prophesy for anybody. He was like a prophet for hire. These people will do anything for money. And they'll do things in the name of Jesus for money. We see that today. We see some people who claim to be preachers of the gospel that a, just a summary view of the gospel will tell you that they're not preaching the gospel and they're making a lot of money. Some people do this kind of stuff, spiritual things, religious things for money. That's what these people are. He says, these people are blemishes at your love feast. They're eating with you without the slightest qualm. These people are living life in an evil and profligate way. And you're, they're at your feasts. This is a point of shame. They are clouds without rain. Hmm. What's that mean? Well, a cloud, you see clouds coming and you think, oh, there's rain that's going to fall. But if rain doesn't fall, those clouds are fake. They're empty. They're, they look like rain producers, but they're not. These people look like believers, but they're not. And how can you tell? Look at their life. A Presbyterian pastor, I've had several of them in the past, he would insist that if you call yourself a believer, the work of God, the spirit of God should be working out the attributes of God in your life and it should be visible. It shouldn't be hard to see that you love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. It shouldn't be hard to see you love your neighbor as yourself. It shouldn't be hard to see the attributes of the spirit coming out of you. This is nothing, you don't adopt patterns of behavior in order to get admittance to the body of Christ. You get admitted to the body of Christ and God starts working on the behavior. It's kind of what happened with Paul on his road to Damascus. He was a very religious-minded person, powerful in the religious community in his day. And when Jesus confronted him, his life changed. Countless stories of evil people being changed by the grace of God. And again, I go back to what I said a few minutes ago. If you truly understand the grace of God, your life will change. Apparently, people had info, had, were in the body of Christ, claiming to be part of the body of Christ. They weren't the body of Christ. But it looks to me like it's fairly easy to see who those people are. 
Look at the way they're eating and drinking. Look at the way they're partying. Look at their uh, sexual proclivities. Look at their lifestyle. Now, why are they there if it's easy to identify them? Maybe they're socially prominent people. Maybe many of the believers feel less than them in society, and so they don't think they can rebuke these people. I don't know. But these people had infiltrated the body of Christ, and they bring shame to that body by the way they act. They're clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. Hmm. Again, they're trees that look like they ought to bear fruit, but there's no fruit. It's autumn. And so they're dead because it's autumn and they're dead because they've borne no fruit. They're uprooted. These people are not rooted in the faith. So there's, uh, there's a prophecy from Enoch here. It says, um, The Lord's coming with thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone, to convict them all of the ungodly acts they've committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people take it upon themselves to say the most incredible things. Uh, there was a movement in the 70s when I was saved uh, where, where Christians would uh, order angels around. They took the verse that said, aren't angels ministering spirits sent forth to ser serve those who will inherit salvation? And they took that to mean that these were actual like celestial busboys, celestial maids and chauffeurs. They ordered angels to go do this, to go do that. You don't talk about things you don't understand like that. You just don't. These people had all sorts of things. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others to their own advantage. It's not hard. It's not hard to see these people. You look to their lifestyle. Everything that he's listing here as, as proof of how evil these people are are things that we can see in the way they live their life. Are they always grumbling? Are they fault, finding fault with others? They boast about themselves and they flatter others to their own advantage. Mm. In the last times, there'll be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. That's what the apostles said. So, this is a letter from Jude, half-brother of Jesus, and it really, it dovetails in with what Second Peter says and really with what almost every one of these of the epistles in the New Testament say. You know, there's, uh, there's, a, uh, there's a standard of behavior to be expected by people who call themselves believers in, in Yeshua. And it's hard to get sometimes, but you don't do these things to be a follower of Jesus. But if you have bowed your knee to Jesus truly and have experienced the grace of God, then these things will work themselves out in your life. And you can't understand the grace of God and the mercy of God unless you've got a grip on your own moral depravity of your sin. 
when I had that experience in that church service in boot camp, I was I came face to face with who Paige was on the inside. And Paige on the inside is not pretty. And I realized at that moment that the price I was going to have to pay for my sinful nature was death. Hell. And like I said, if the gates of hell had opened up behind me, I would have walked through without excuse because that's what I deserved. But then when Christ forgave me, I've got to tell you something. It was the most amazing moment of my life. A diamond is best displayed against a black backdrop because that's when the brilliance of the diamond shows up the best. God's grace is best understood when you understand your depravity and your sin. People who don't understand that live like the people that Jude is talking about. They see no reason to change. Oh, God's God's grace is gonna forgive me, I can do what I want. That's basically what these people are saying. I can sleep with whoever I want. That's what these people are saying. I can eat and drink and do whatever I want because God will forgive me. That's what these people are saying. The people of God would say, no. Show me your faith by a godly lifestyle. On the flip side, and I'll close with this, people who live like this are showing their faith. Their lifestyle is demonstrating where their heart is. If your heart is truly with Yeshua, if your heart is truly of the family of faith, your sin should bring grief. That doesn't mean you're perfect, uh, but when you sin, there should be grief involved because you hate it. You know, Paul would say, I know what I should do and I don't do it. I know what I shouldn't do and I find myself doing that all the time. Who shall save me from this body of death? There was grief involved over his own sin. A believer should be grieving over the sin that's in their life. These people are not. They're rejoicing and celebrating the sin in their life. So, all right, ladies and jolly spoons, that's it. Jude wrote a powerful, punchy little letter, and I'm grateful for him for that. Uh, Monday, this is Friday, so Monday we start up. We're going to start up with the book of Revelation. That is going to be fun, and that will be my last New Testament uh, book for this year. In fact, it's taken about a year. I'm thinking about a year and a month to uh, since I started this, and I've been so grateful to what uh, what's happened in my life since then. So uh, join me on Monday as we start going through the book of Revelation. I think you'll be surprised. All right, this is Mr. G. I am out of here. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. Neither should my thoughts be your thoughts. You need to think for yourself.